Well, Acts chapter 6, Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, that's our sermon text this morning. If you have your Bible, go ahead and begin turning there. And if you don't have a Bible, um, there's one provided for you in the back of the pew right there in front of you. And you'll find this on, um, I believe it's page 774 or 814. 774, 814, Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. As I have said before, you know, where you have people, you have problems. And, uh, amen, that's right. There was one especially memorable example of that in my life um, back when I worked in the corporate world. There was, uh, I had an employee who um, worked in, in the department I was the sort of frontline supervisor of. And she really was, let me, let me preface this by saying, she really was just a delightful woman, mostly. Uh, you know, most of the time. And if we, if we saw each other now after all these years, I mean, it would be just a happy reunion, and we would smile, and we would hug, and, and, uh, and catch up. You know, it really would be wonderful. But she, she could, if she got her fur rubbed the wrong direction, you know, she uh, could express her uh, displeasure with that fact, you know. So uh, there was this one story, actually my manager told me this had happened before um, I had even come to the department, so this didn't affect me directly, but she was just kind of helping me understand this employee, and she said there had been a meeting one time, you know, late in the afternoon or whatever, they had the whole department in, and they had, they had bought some snacks, they had some chocolate chip cookies and Coca-Colas or whatever, and... Um, you know, had their meeting and just provided snacks for the employees. And, and at the end of the meeting, uh, you know, the, everybody dispersed and they began to clean up and that sort of thing and go home. And, and um, the, the folks that had lingered toward the end or whatever, there were some, some cookies left over. And so the manager said, hey, if you want another cookie, there's a few left, go ahead and grab one on your way out. Well, she got a call later that evening from this dear woman who said, I heard that you let some people have another cookie. <laughs> and I didn't know we could have another cookie. If I had known you, if I was, if I had known you were going to let people have another cookie, I would have stayed and had another cookie. And she was, she was upset about that. She was genuinely upset. Uh, she, it was a big deal to her. She was the only one. Uh, to whom it was a big deal, but it was a big deal to her. You know, sometimes people can get upset about things that seem trivial to us, but to them, it's a big deal. And in Acts 6, the church has to respond to a newly emerging problem that impacts a lot of people, and it could have seemed like a small deal to some and a big deal to others, but from the response that we see from the leadership of the church, there are some lessons we can learn about Resolving Church Problems with Wisdom and Grace. And that's the title of this morning's message, as I said, from Acts 6, 1 through 7. So let's look there together now. And I'm going to ask you to stand, if you're able, in honor of the reading of God's Word. Acts 6, beginning in verse 1, I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. Hear the Word of the Lord. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. 
And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Let's pray together. Well, Father, we do thank you that when we gather together as part of our worship, Lord, that we can sit and listen to what you have to say to us. We are so grateful, Lord, that you have not left us grasping around in the dark in this world, but, Lord, that you have spoken clearly to your people in your word And we need to hear it. You know that we always do. Lord, it is truth and it is life. And we need both truth and life spoken into us every single day. And so, Lord, we come knowing that you know the needs that are represented in this congregation. You know the issues we're facing. You know the issues we're going to face as a congregation. And so, Lord, we pray that you would make your word come alive to us today, that you would minister, to our, uh, minister it to our hearts according to our need. And so we ask that you would speak your word by your spirit through your servant to your people for your glory. And Lord, would you move me out of the way and just use my voice as an instrument to communicate your message to us today in Christ's name. Amen. And you may be seated. As most of you know, this this series is called Beyond uh, because in our study of Acts, we are taking notice of the first century church that um, lived beyond their weekly gatherings, beyond the walls of Sunday, um, and even beyond the borders as it would turn out. That, that most of their work, they saw their mission to be out there and not in here, so to speak. And this fo- focused uh, mostly on the work of the apostles, and that's why it's called the Acts of the Apostles, as they spread the gospel in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But along the way, we get a few snapshots of the sort of internal life of the church as a community. And this passage is the third of those snapshots. We saw one at the end of chapter 2, and then at the end of chapter 4, beginning of 5, and now the third one here. In the encounter just prior to this, we read that it was a time when many signs and wonders were being performed by the hands of the apostles. That was in chapter 5, verse 12. And multitudes of men and women were being added to their number. More than ever, it said, the church was growing 
more than ever, which is a staggering fact given that 3,000 came to faith on the day of Pentecost alone. Then there was another moment where it told us the number of men came to be 5,000 in the church. And now there's this period of growth where more than ever, multitudes of men and women are being added to their number. Uh, it surely had to have topped 10,000 uh, or so by that time. We really don't know how many, but it's uh, quite a big congregation. And in this period of great multiplication, uh, the Jewish leaders, of course, had been stirred up by their jealousy and the apostles were imprisoned, intimidated, and threatened. But God's plan could not be derailed. They continued to preach the word of God. And that's when a complaint arose among the Hellenists concerning the daily distribution. That's the, the sort of the crux of the matter before us and what we just read. And so I want to explain kind of as a preface, what is the daily distribution and who are the Hellenists? That'll help us. We, we really can't appreciate uh, what's being addressed here if we don't understand those two things. And first of all, this was a daily distribution to widows. Widows needed community care when there was no family to care for them. So if a woman's husband had died and he had been the provider in the home, if there was not a child, an adult child or somebody or some other family that could take her in, she had no means of provision. And so that became a community concern and the community would care for her. It consisted of food, probably some clothing, uh, and some would say possibly uh, some money if there were special needs for money that, that needed to be distributed. But they took care of the widows. And it seems to mirror the practice um, that the Jewish community followed. This was something that was, was customary. Uh, it was just what they did in that day. But in the Jewish community, there was a, a week, a once-a-week distribution of food and clothing and then a daily distribution of more urgent needs uh, for whatever those were. But this says it's concerning the Hellenist widows in particular. The Hellenists were essentially Greek-speaking Jews, Jews who spoke Greek as their primary language and embraced some elements of Greek culture. They are probably people, and they are ethnic Jews, but they have lived elsewhere um, in, other, in other parts of the Greco-Roman world, adopted the Greek language, adopted some of the customs that would have been associated with wherever they were um, living and become Greek in a, lot of, you know, in a lot of ways that they go about life. They may have had a looser view of the law, less attachment to the temple. And so in Jerusalem, there would have been a cultural, there would have been and was a cultural divide of sorts between the Hellenists or the Greek-speaking Jews and what uh, this passage here just calls the Hebrews, those who spoke Aramaic, those who were Jewish through and through. The Hellenists were estimated to be about 10 to 20% of the population. So it's a minority, but it's a pretty sizable minority. And, and to sort of attach some kind of picture of, the, of this to give it a, a, a sense of what this might have looked like, if you will. I mean, think in our day, and this is a loose comparison, but think in our day of um, Muslims who adopt Western dress 
and Western customs, Western meaning Europe and America and that sort of thing. They move to Europe or America and they embrace uh, the clothing and customs and attire and that sort of thing versus some Muslims who continue to wear traditional attire. They eat mostly, you know, Arabic food. They follow all of the customs of um, Islam and the, and the Muslim lifestyle. And they might not fully appreciate those who have adopted Western customs, right? We kind of appreciate what that looks like. And that's kind of what's going on here uh, in Jerusalem, in the church. And as the apostles respond to this complaint, we see three principles for addressing church problems. I will say particularly the first of those can be applied um, to addressing problems in any context, just between two people in any group or whatever. And that is, Number one, don't treat complaints as unimportant just because they seem less important. And by the way, I will um, henceforth refer to unimportant complaints as a chocolate chip cookie issue. (laughs) That's how I've referred to them for the last 25 years or so. But don't treat complaints as unimportant just because they seem less important. Verse 1 reminds us that this complaint arose at a time when the church was growing. When things were going really, really, really well, a complaint arose. That's shocking, isn't it? How could that happen in a church? Growing more than ever. And, and, And again, for this, the apostles are put in prison threatened and beaten before they're released. That's what we read about just prior to their coming back here. And the fact that some of the widows are supposedly being neglected in the daily distribution couldn't possibly have seemed like the biggest problem at that time, right? I mean, would it to you? You know, if, you were, if you've just been beaten and you're dealing with you know, people are being come out into the streets with all their sicknesses and diseases and being healed. Thousands of people are being saved and you're trying to, how do we minister to all these people or whatever and some people aren't, are getting inadequately served. That, that might not strike you as the biggest problem. We can probably imagine ourselves in that situation reacting differently than the apostles did. And we would forgive one another if we did. We could imagine going, are you serious? So what you're telling me is, you know, somebody else is always getting the chicken breast and, and you're, you're always left with just the chicken wings. And sometimes, you know, there's not even any mashed potatoes left when the servant comes around to you. That's what you're telling me. That's the problem here. You know what? Forget it. You know, we don't have time for this. This is not our priority. Jesus did not tell us to go and make chicken for people. He said, go and make disciples. And uh, we just can't, we can't make this our problem. Forget it. No more fried chicken ministry here anymore. We're just doing away with it. We're going to focus on the things that matter most. I mean, we, we can imagine feeling that way if that were ourselves. And, and again, if we're honest, we can, we can probably recall a problem where we had that sort of reaction because I just don't have time for a problem, especially your problem. <laughs> I'm dealing with my problems. I don't have time for your problem. And we re- react out of that. But obviously there's not even a hint 
of that sort of reaction from the apostles without hesitation. Proper care for the widows is important to them. And apparently it's totally believable to them that the Hellenist widows are actually being neglected. They don't question that. Uh, They just move right to what the response is. But even if there were no neglect, the fact that the Hellenists feel like they're being neglected, I think would still matter to the apostles. Because it's likely they recognize that the bigger issue here is not the distribution, but the neglect. Okay? The, The bigger issue is not that they're Physical needs are being insufficiently met, although that's a big issue. I think what's the bigger issue is the neglect that one sub-community of the church feels um, during this process, whether intentionally or unintentionally. And it says a complaint rose uh, not among the Hellenist widows. Let's let's take notice of this. Again, to appreciate what's the real issue here. And this is why uh, don't treat a problem as unimportant just because it seems less important because it may turn out to be more important than you think it is. What looks like a chocolate chip cookie issue might not be a chocolate chip cookie issue. But it doesn't say that a complaint arose among the Hellenist widows that they were being neglected. What does it say? A complaint arose among the Hellenists that their widows were being neglected. And these are almost certainly not family members of the widows. If there were family members, they would be taking care of the widows, not the church. This is people in a minority community that recognize inequitable treatment of some of their own people. That's what's going on here. That they, they feel, they feel that neglect because likely they live with it all the time. I mean, likely there are always people looking down on them a little bit because they're the Greek speaking ones, you know, because <laughs> they're different in that regard. It's a cultural minority subcommunity, and some of their own folks see that neglect. You know, it's really a providential one. Once again, the timing of uh, of how we arrive at some of these messages and um, in this series. But uh, yesterday, we just came back from Presbytery meeting, and if you're new uh, here to our church or to Presbyterian church at all, Presbytery is essentially just a council of elders that um, supports and oversees churches within a region. And uh, we meet together. We send elders to meet together periodically. And so we just came off a Presbyterian meeting the last couple of days. And on Friday, there was a young uh, black pastor from a church in Harrisonburg, Virginia called Divine Unity Community Church. The church started with the purpose of being uh, multiracial, multigenerational, multicultural, that they made that their mission, that they're going to do the hard work. They're going to live through the discomfort associated with being the kind of church on earth that the Bible describes we'll see in heaven of every tribe and tongue and nation 
And, and, and it, was, it was really, you know, quite inspiring and enlightening and, and some other things. But one of the things he, he mentioned was just the, 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 the lack of understanding there is in our culture. And it's getting worse, not better, um, in terms of uh, racial issues and that kind of thing. And um, it's, it's sort of made worse just by the way public dialogue happens. Again, social media just generally doesn't help <laughs> in that regard as far as conversation. It just sort of helps us shout in images, kind of. But, uh, but he mentioned in the course of that, that that one of the things they do, they have uh, not only a, a staff that's multiracial, a leadership team that's multiracial, and part of what they do is talk together to understand how they see things differently. And he said, for instance, when he, and he re, hears what sees on the news or reads about on the news um, a young black man being shot, uh, particularly you know, by a police officer or whatever, he said, regardless of the right or wrong in the situation, it doesn't, that doesn't even matter. And he said, I identify with him. So he's, he's part of my community and I, I identify uh, with that pain that his family feels and that sort of thing. Well, there's a, a sense in which this is what's going on here. You've got the, the Hellenists raise this complaint because they see neglect toward their widows. And what's the significance of that? Well, recall in, in chapter 2 and 4, the way it describes this church, that, that, that one of the things that characterizes them is it's just a radical generosity toward one another, right? And a unity like is hard to even imagine where they, they share all things in common, it said in chapter 2. In chapter 4, it says they didn't, they didn't even consider their, their things their own but they just had everything in common. Some of them even sold property and possessions, brought the proceeds to the apostles to distribute to any who had need. That's what this church is like. And in, in that church where unity is one of the foundation stones, there's potentially a crack that's getting ready to form in the foundation here. And that's something the church had to address not just the apostles, although the apostles did have to take responsibility for addressing, but it was a matter the church had to address, and we should notice it's an issue that did matter to the entire church. Look at verse 5 at what it says there. Let me see if I can find verse 5. Well, if, let me back up. If we look in... Verse 2, the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples. When this problem arose, they, they assembled the whole church, the full number of disciples, and said, hey, we can't leave preaching the word of God in order to serve tables and pick out from, uh, men from uh, your, yourselves or whatever, and we'll appoint them to the task. But it says in verse 5, this pleased the whole gathering. This mattered to everybody. They were not going to excuse it. They were not going to explain it away. They weren't going to try to deny that it was happening. 
they embrace the fact we need a solution to this problem, the whole church, because the unity of the church is at stake. And so see, don't treat a problem as unimportant just because it seems less important because you might be looking at the wrong problem. You might need to look deeper to find out what the, the real problem is. And again, this applies, this applies in relationships of all sorts. Just two people, organizations or whatever. There are some practical things we can do to establish this discipline of not treating a problem as a chocolate chip cookie issue just because it first appears to be one. Three practical things I can think of. Number one, just assume there's more to it. You know, I found out in 17 years of working in uh, Christian schooling, there were lots of kids that show up every single day. There are lots of parents that we related with and that sort of thing. And I found more often than not, the problem is not the real problem. Whatever it is that's first announced is not the real problem. Whatever, whatever set the fuse off, you know, whatever, whatever sent that person boiling and steaming isn't the real issue because they were already at like 99 degrees Celsius, right? And it was just that this issue that just tipped it up to 100 and then they started boiling. There's, there's usually something deeper. Look, assume it's there, okay? Assume there's more to it. Number two, ask questions. So as you're, as you're trying to come up with solutions to problems, ask questions more than you make statements. And one of the questions you ought to be asking yourself as you inquire here is what's the real issue? What's the real issue? I mean, imagine a scenario where a spouse uh, uh, says, or somebody says to their spouse, you know, um, I just, we're, we're hardly, you know, spending any time together now. You're, you, uh, you know, you're, you're just sort of just totally poured into work a lot of times. And if not there, um, you know, you're, you, you love spending, hanging out with your friends or whatever, or the kids and this sort of thing. But we're, you know, we're just not spending time together. And so uh, maybe the other spouse comes back around and says, you know, you're right. I, I, I took, I scheduled a couple of days off and, uh, and, and, and booked us a place up in the mountains. We can have a long weekend. We can get away together. Well, that's a good move, a good, good first step, uh, and, and uh, enjoy, enjoy your trip. Um, you, it's very likely you missed the real issue because it may be um, that what you didn't hear was that your spouse doesn't feel uh, the sense of priority that he or she deserves in, in your relationship. In other words, a couple of days away isn't going to solve the problem if the issue is really a matter of just priority. <laughs> you get what I'm saying? In other words, look, at that, look to see um, if there is what the real issue is. And, that, and that, that, that involves asking questions and then listening would be the third one. Uh, assume there's more to it. Ask questions and listen I could say again, I've gone into a number of uh, sort of problem resolution situations where I think I understand what the problem is and what I'm going to do and respond, what I'm going to say. 
Here's what my plan is and response is going to be. I've got it ready to go. I'm scheduling a conversation in order to communicate that and ask a question almost rhetorically, meaning I'm thinking there's not really a good answer to that question. It's just kind of to sort of make a point that'll lead me into saying what it is I need to say there. And lo and behold, there's information I didn't know. There are facts I didn't know that were pertinent to the problem. Ask questions and listen. And you may find out uh, what you thought was the issue isn't the real issue. But don't treat a problem as unimportant just because it seems less important. And that one is huge. I'll move quickly through the other two. But number two, ensure that preachers remain focused on preaching and praying. So the apostles said here in verse two, let's look there. The 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. And then verse four, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now, again, I'm in the interest of time. I'm not going to um, belabor this a whole lot, but the priority and responsibility of pastors is the ministry of the word. That, that by the way, doesn't um, just entirely equal preaching on Sunday or preparing to preach on Sunday. The, the word can be ministered and should be ministered one-on-one in response to a number of situations that people face in their own lives. But the priority is on the ministry of, word, of the word. And every week I can say, uh, there are countless good things that I could spend my time doing besides preparing to preach. Good things that deserve attention. There, there are some things I could spend time doing that I feel like I would uh, love to do, more home visits or hospital visits and those kind of things, caring for people in that way. Things that I might be able to do that I could really be good at, like administrative things. I've got some experience in that area. But there's a certain point beyond which it would be inappropriate for me to do that because the priorities get out of balance and the priority must remain on preaching the word of God. And so when problems and challenges arise in the church, pastors uh, must not think they have to be the solution. That they have to be the one going in and sort of putting their hands on, serving the tables as it were. There are all kinds of needs uh, that they simply can't devote their time to. Because number three, or sort of with that, is number three, and that is delegate the ministry task to the right people. So don't, don't treat a problem as unimportant just because it seems less important. Uh, ensure preachers maintain a priority on preaching and delegate the ministry task to the right people. Look at verses three and five. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. And verse five says, what they said pleased the whole gathering. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These are often thought of as being the first 
deacons. It doesn't actually call them that, although um, it does use a related word. So the word for deacon is diakonos, which just means servant. It doesn't use that word here. It does use uh, the verb form of the word where it says something about uh, serving tables. Um, That's the diakoneo, the verb form of that word. The distribution is just another form of that word. Um, Diakonia, I think is the word. So it doesn't call them deacons, but it does refer to the work that they're being set apart for as service. Uh, So it might be hard to make an airtight argument that these are the first deacons per se, but at least the prototype deacons. (laughs) And and it um, it does give us some principles Uh, that can still be applied in selecting deacons, uh, elders, and other leaders. And what are those? Well, number one, pick leaders that are spiritually mature. Notice it says, these are men of good repute who are filled with the Spirit and filled with wisdom. To oversee the task of distributing food and clothing um, to the widows. The right Men, spiritually mature, of good reputation among the congregation. Second, notice they're people who are closest to the problems. I wish we had more time here because this is actually striking and kind of worth lingering on and meditating on ourselves. Verse 5 names the leaders that I just mentioned. Those are all Greek names. The problem is that the Greek-speaking Jews are being underserved. They they call in the whole congregation to say, hey, uh, the apostles, we can't do this. It would not be appropriate for us to do this. You pick out yourselves, seven men, we'll appoint them to the task. And it says, this Please, the whole gathering. Yay, we, we're going we're gonna to come up with a solution to it. And what do they do? They pick seven minority men to oversee this, this ministry. I mean, that's worth, that's worth meditating on, I think. <laughs> because see, this was not, this wasn't pick out seven Hellenist men to take care of the Hellenists. This is pick out seven men who are going to oversee this ministry to the whole lot of us. And the whole congregation says, let's pick seven Greek-speaking Jews with Greek names. One of them who's actually, it says, a proselyte, a convert. He's not even a Jew. He was a Gentile who converted to Judaism and has since become a Christian. It highlights that fact here. But part of what they've done here is they pick people who are closest to the problem to solve the problem. By the way, I would mention uh, parenthetically for leaders in any context, um, even when you delegate a problem, stay close to the problem. Because if you... um, allow a problem to go on by making it somebody else's problem. (laughs) 
Um, it's easy to kind of keep yourself sort of immune from it so you don't have to worry about it. Stay close to the problem. But they pick people who are closest to the problem. Pick leaders who are spiritually mature, uh, leaders who are closest to the problem, and leaders, it says, who are chosen by the whole congregation. This is how we do officer selections ourselves here. This is, this is part of why we have that process. That officers are nominated and then selected by the congregation and examined uh, by the elders. It kind of models this, what we read, read right here. You choose them, we will appoint them to the task. That's what the apostles say. And they lay hands on and, and, and appoint them for that. But these are seven men chosen to come up with a resolution for a church. As I said, that could easily have numbered over 10,000 people. Not just seven guys who make the best fried chicken. Not just seven good-hearted guys to lock and unlock doors and set up tables. These are seven highly regarded, wise, spirit-filled men who would assess situations, make decisions on how to serve the congregation the very best. And so, you know, the strength of any organization depends on the strength of leadership. What they did here was appointed leaders. They delegated to new leaders to take care of this problem. In any organization, the strength of the organization depends on the strength of its leadership. And our effectiveness um, as a church requires us to always be developing new leaders as well. And in every generation, you know, new ones have to rise up. People who are willing to invest themselves in others and earn trust. To become connected enough that you earn trust, that you become a person of good repute among the congregation because the congregation knows you. People who are willing to grow in wisdom, who study the word of God and learn how to apply it to decision making. And there are probably some here who may not think of themselves as being that right now. That you, you, know, you don't think yourself as, of yourself maybe as a, a candidate to be a future leader or a future officer or whatever. One of the things we're planning in that regard, uh, in fact, coming up in just a, a few weeks, is a prospective future officer orientation. And it's just kind of a first step for us to help orient people to what is required. Like, what do we expect of officers so if and when the time comes that you're nominated or begin to feel called um, to that, that you have some running head start to that and know what those expectations are and how you can begin to grow as a leader. And we'll have more information about that coming out. But I think there are some people who just need to see in themselves what God sees in you. <laughs> and that is what, what you are becoming, not what you are. What, you, what he sees you can be, not what you are. What what he's going to make you into and not what you are, and then take steps out into allowing him to shape you into that, even in being leaders and servants within the congregation. But when problems and complaints arise in the church community, and they do, they do, even when things are going well. But the goal is to restore unity and empower the expansion of the gospel. And see, this is one of the things... I, I keep laboring over or belaboring, I guess, 
through this study on Acts is to, is to marvel at how unified this church was. Because we are so fractured, especially in, in American Protestantism. But as Americans, so independent-minded and that kind of thing, so apt to just do our own thing. I mean, we, we almost don't even have a category to imagine a church as unified as this one was in the first century. But, it, but we ought to strive to be, and we ought to uh, be quick to restore it whenever it's threatened to be lost. That's exactly what we saw here that becomes the goal, to, to restore unity and empower the expansion of the gospel. And when those are really our goals, we'll rush to resolution, rush to restoration with people and know that God is glorified as a result. Can you say amen to that? Well, let's pray. And I'll um, ask the worship team to make their way forward as we do and, um, and even invite some elders maybe to make their way up for the conclusion of our service. Lord, we thank you that you are good and gracious to us always. We thank you for making us one body. That we, are, we, we share in this experience of being made joint heirs with Jesus. Everything we have in you is just a gift of your amazing grace. Lord, we continue to ask that more and more you would make us people who who live like that, who assume the best about people and not the worst, that even when we hear a complaint or see a problem, we soon assume there's more to it than the chocolate chip cookie, as it were, but that we see a person really hurt, really wounded, really troubled by something that's going on that we need to understand in order to move toward unity. We remember that Jesus prayed that for his church, that, that we would be one as the Father and the Son are one. Lord, we recognize we are not even close. But Lord, would you make us look more and more that way. Show us the interests we need to give up of our own. Show us the places we need to understand other people. And, and Lord, incline our hearts to seek understanding of those things we don't understand at all. To have conversation, dialogue with people, to do more listening than we do talking. Assuming that there's more we need to know in order to be closely knit together with every brother and sister on the planet that names the name of Jesus, of every tongue and tribe and nation, of every socioeconomic strata, of everyone, Lord, that we would, that we would feel a kinship with them because we know you've made us kin. Lord, would you just reveal all the things in our heart that need to be laid bare before you and made right with others 
that you would make us more like Jesus. And so God, help us to see even complaints and problems as opportunities to work those things out of us, to work more of you in us, and to shape us as a body more and more in your image. And we open ourselves to receive that in the name of Jesus. Amen.